This is the Made For More podcast. The health and wellness industry can be dogmatic and stagnant. We aim to explore what makes up the true essence of the human experience by discussing health, happiness, the human body, and what it truly means to be made for more. I'm your host, Jake Reynolds, along with co-host Lauren Sock and Mary Kathleen Toner. Today's episode of Made for More is sponsored by Functionize Health and Physical Therapy. Functionize Health and Physical Therapy provides modern wellness for the everyday athlete. Functionize is a private pay physical therapy and wellness center serving active adults and athletes across the greater Atlanta area. Built on the foundation of understanding human experience, offering practical solutions, and insisting on an individualized approach, Functionize empowers you to take control of your health and wellness today so you may thrive and enjoy your best years ahead. You can find Functionize Health online at www.functionizehealth.com or call at 404-907-4196. Now, made for more. Welcome everybody to the Made for More podcast. I'm Jake Reynolds. And I'm Lauren Sock. And today we are thrilled to have on local psychologist, Decia Dixon of the Parent-Child Practice with us. Thank you for being with us today, Dr. Dixon. Absolutely, thank you for having me. For sure. So uh, we have a lot of questions that I think will be helpful for parents uh, struggling with back to school routines and certain challenges for their children. But before we dive into that, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, how you got into psychology in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a licensed child psychologist, and I'm also a nationally certified school psychologist. Um, So I started out um, working in the schools as a local school psychologist here in Georgia, and I also worked in Florida and Tennessee. And um, funny enough, I actually started out as a computer science major, though. Ah, uh, interesting. And we'll probably maybe talk about when you choose the thing that's not your interest or passion. <laughs> um, yep. And I was not suited for that. In fact, I tell kids who do the career assessment inventory with me, I chose computer science because I liked being on AOL.com back then. <laughs> <laughs> realized a little bit into programming classes that this was not meant for me, that I enjoyed solving problems in the computer lab for people uh, more than I did programming. So Interesting. mm -hmm, Yeah. And uh, went to a retreat my sophomore year of college, and it was about your life's calling. And it was simply that you've always been doing what you were meant to do. And Mm -hmm. It is a very interesting concept. And so she asked us to do an exercise where you thought about what have you been doing all of your life, right? Mm. Um, Not necessarily your role, job role, but things you've been drawn to all of your life. Yeah, yeah. And uh, mine was giving advice and solving problems and supporting and helping children in elementary through parental divorces and giving my Mm. own parents advice and... um, I sat back and thought, maybe I should take a psych class. And I loved it. So you realized that at that retreat that, oh, this has kind of been a pattern in my life. Or did it take you some time to actually kind of not to set on you? Or you knew immediately? I knew immediately. I mean, like, I mean, you know, because she really, it was much more extensive than what I just described. But, you know, we spent a bit of time that weekend reflecting and 
I said that in a group, like I have been like helping people my entire life and I love it. Like I, I don't get tired of it. I, I just loved seeing people have aha moments. Um, and I was oddly doing that. I can recall like even at five years old, right. Um, and sitting down with my family saying like, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. How are you? feeling. Um, you know, my parents even laugh about that, that I have literally been a walking psychologist since I was <laughs> This truly was like your, your yeah, your life calling. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then I took psychology class. And like I said, I didn't know what kind I wanted to be. Um, but I took the, the courses and um, discovered, you know, through thinking about volunteering, what volunteering I was drawn to. Again, it was children, adolescents. I may mean, had a heart for them always um and thought i would you know pursue that in psychology and i am definitely in my spot my sweet spot yeah well i think it's important for me to kind of share my story and how we connected Mm -hmm. um so that i can give a little bit of a background of why i wanted you to come on and you know for people that don't know i have twin boys they're 16 and they've always struggled in school in some way. Um, you know, early on, they were in elementary school and they, um, I think it was around third grade was like the eye-opening moment where they just were, they were clearly frustrated in school. They would have temper tantrums. They would throw things, hide under their desk. And, you know, the school psychologist calls and says, you got to come get your child. Um, they're disrupting the class. And of course, at that time, I felt like I was so alone that I was the only parent in the world that was dealing with these difficult boys and everybody else's children could sit there at the desk and complete their work. And mine didn't. So we had gotten psychoeducational testing, um, back then, which was, you know, it helped us with a strategy and we actually then changed schools because we realized that school was not for them. And we've kind of navigated, you know, through those times and, um, gotten them through, but fast forward now they are in high school and the challenges have changed, of course. Um, and they are now, um, starting their junior year of high school, but, what was manifesting was a little different. So like they were missing assignments, they were forgetting to turn things in. And I believe they truly felt like they had turned it in. They just completely forgot. They were disorganized. They were, you know, if it was a class like French, they were struggling, but in other classes like history, they loved it. And um, so I was, you know, sitting there going, gosh, they're, they're really smart kids but they're struggling with school. And I don't think it has to be that hard. And so and the other eye-opening thing was they started driving. And I thought, oh my gosh, there are so many distractions on the road and they are really unsafe and not making the best decisions. And clearly we are all unsafe at 16 trying to learn. But I could see that there was some sort of processing issue that was happening. And I, it put me down this rabbit hole of like, let me give my kids a strategy to be successful rather than pigeonholing, pigeonholing them into a certain, you know, career major in college or thinking that they're good at something that maybe they're not. And so I talked to my husband and said, let's get another psych ed test so that we can really help them prepare the next two years of high school for college and then beyond, because I don't want to be spending all this money to send them to college. And then they fail out because they hate what they've been, they're doing. So 
maybe you can share, like, is this a common story you hear from parents where they feel very alone and they just don't know what to do? Absolutely. I mean, it, it is so common, um, you know, that it, you know, in fact, when I tell parents the storyline, you know, they think like, are you following me right around? Mm-hmm. Because it is, mm-hmm. it is incredibly common, right? And, and, you know, I have the the fortune um, that I am also a parent. And I'm not only a psychologist, and I'm a parent to, to a boy who um, mm-hmm. is definitely presenting <laughs> with some of those unique differences, right. And so I can now very easily um, say like, and I understand what it's like to be mm-hmm. a parent when you have all that knowledge. And then you're still like, but nobody else is experiencing this on a day to day basis, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, yes, it is absolutely um, a common theme of parents feeling like, am I doing something wrong? Am I not doing enough? Right. Um, And I think it's an inherent nature because, again, I'm a psychologist, but I'm also a parent and can have those kinds of worry thoughts of like, am I not doing the right intervention that I know works? Right. Mm -hmm. Because Mm -hmm. you have a child first with unique differences. So every child Mm -hmm. is simply that a child. They are not um, the child. They're not the learning disabled child. They're not the ADHD child. They're not the anxious child. They're not the depressed child, Mm -hmm. meaning that, oh, we treat those symptoms first and then like everything is solved. Mm -hmm. They're the child first Mm -hmm. with their set of strengths, weaknesses, personality. Right. right? Um, And then there are those things that are different about them Mm -hmm. and, and how see the world, which either highlight some of those strengths, right, or make something struggles because of the environment, and, mm-hmm. and it doesn't yeah. be set up to support those differences. So right. Mm-hmm. And we and we saw that with my boys, you know, being twins, it was like, they were very different. And um, but because they're twins, they tend to get lumped into one, everybody mm-hmm. thinks that they compare them to each other, they're one unit, but they were very, it was very eye opening for me to um, see how different they were when I didn't see it even as a parent. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I think that's a common thing too, you know, definitely with twins um, Mm -hmm. or or triplets or anything like that where they are birthed at the same time. You tend to see them as a group um, Mm -hmm. versus individuals. But even when you have just, you know, siblings that were born, you know, in different birth orders, you still sometimes will naturally begin to make comparisons, right? That I didn't have this experience with the first one, or I'm not having this experience with the second one. You know, why am I having these challenges? This parenting strategy I'm using is not working for both. Um, mm-hmm. And that is that is not the way that parenting works. And so, you know, in my role, um, why I'm probably so passionate about it is because I really want to help as much as possible unload that burden, um, remove the, the, the cloak of secrecy or shame Mm -hmm. or, um, or just kind of feeling that isolation, you know, having a child with unique differences can feel very alone and isolating. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but I, what I, but really what it is, is that the world or society doesn't see it as what it really is. They're just different strengths. Sure. Right. So a child with ADHD, for example, in the environment, they're seen as having adaptational struggles. Right. That means mm-hmm. that they're not adapting successfully to the subscribed environment. 
And then there, and people are using labels like they're lazy, they're not motivated, mm-hmm. um, they're a problem child, they're oppositional, they're defiant. Um, and rarely are we hearing as the parents then the other things about them, and true, including other similar diagnoses, anxiety, learning disabilities, very similar, tenacious, right? Mm-hmm. These yeah. Very tenacious. You know, it's like being put in a world where, you know, everyone, you know, uh, walks on their legs, but maybe I walk upside down and I'm still trying to figure out how to like manage it and I don't give up because yeah. I'm in the world. I've got to figure yeah. it out. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's, that's tenacity. Yeah. That's yeah. consistence. Sure. Right. It's funny because I remember when I was young, maybe, oh gosh, I was maybe five or six years old and my parents thought I was partially deaf because they would say something to me and it just, I don't remember this, but it was, they were like, it's like you weren't hearing us at all. So they went and got my hearing tested and it was like, he's perfectly fine. <laughs> and they said, so what, what environment is he in when he's not hearing? They were like, well, he's normally doing something. They were like, well, he's just locked in. Like he's just so focused on what he's doing. And so just being able to recognize that when he's focused everything else outside is just going to be white noise. Mm-hmm. And so they, they gave a suggestion. They were like, give him like an hour of like Lego building time just to like be able to get locked in and experience that time. And then, you know, that allow him that time to focus and then get him. Cause we were homeschooled cause we we're military. Mm-hmm. You know, we we're talking yeah. about before. And so we moved around a lot. So we were homeschooled and so like have him give him that time and then have him do his other focus work. Mm-hmm. And thank goodness for my parents. They were like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. Like, let, let's just do this. So and you had kind of mentioned early on, like you saw in yourself from a very young age that you enjoyed helping people and helping people work through problems that weren't necessarily your own. So maybe give us some examples of some like aha moments that you've shared with parents uh, or what's a common aha moment that you get with parents? Well, I think so. a couple of common aha moments are um, that parenting is about scaffolding. Right. So, you know, most parents come to me wanting solutions to then turn around and give to their child. Right. Um, And that is usually not going to work very well, particularly Mm -hmm. with toddlers and teenagers um, Mm -hmm. with very similar dispositions. Right. Um, I don't want a solution. I want to come to it on my own. And so and they should. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so aha moment usually for, for parents when we're talking is about how can you help the child come up with a solution that is really best for them? Mm-hmm. How can you come help them come up with some ideas that works for them? Mm-hmm. And then the secondary aha moment then that comes from that is, oh, my child has a life very different than my own. My ideals may not be my child's. You know, so because a lot of parents will come in for the feedback sessions and, you know, they may hear the diagnosis and then they're like, and how can we get them to do better in these following things? Now we know this weakness. How can we make that better? And I get it because as parents, you know, you hold your little baby and you have all these dreams for them. Mm-hmm. Many of them are our own, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Most of them are our own because we don't know who mm-hmm. they are yet. And I think the aha piece comes with, oh, my child has their own dreams and they may look very different than my own. And they, and it's not a sign then of a failure. Sure. It's a difference in a dream. 
right? Mm -hmm. And so then my role as scaffolding is to provide support, right? To mm -hmm. encourage them and to provide the structure to get them to success based mm -hmm. on their own dreams. I heard recently the analogy of a, a parent, you shouldn't be a carpenter, but you should be a gardener. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you're plucking weeds and maybe you're giving some water and some sunshine and fertilizer, but you're just kind of letting that plant do its thing. I like that one. I'm going to steal that one. That one's good. <laughs> yeah. I tell yeah. parents to visualize like um, a stepladder, you know, and so you're simply kind of setting it up and you're being there behind them for support and they're going up on their own, right? You might even be moving the ladder yeah. up a little yeah. bit, but they're there on their own and you're just there to support. And if you see them get a little mm -hmm. wobbly, you're here to like provide a little bit of, you know, back support. Um, yeah. You know, you're, you're not really there to, necessarily catch them from completely falling right um but you're there to maybe mm -hmm. guide them for a way to do it differently right if, if you're stuck yeah. way up high like what can you do differently now you know what should you do what do you feel That's comfortable great. doing yeah well and you know with the results of the test that we did with my boys like what you were saying my husband was always like i'm an engineer they need to be an engineer i've had a good career being an engineer um, it's a good skill to have all these things. And then we did the test and it, you know, revealed that like, he's really good at looking at facts and putting facts together, not necessarily the rote memory of that engineering and math provides, but really looking at relationships and comparisons. And, and that's why he loves history. He loves you know, po like politics and history and looking at the law and all the the preceding events before things have happened. And when you talk to him, he gets so excited just going through, you know, all these events. So it was that aha moment for me and for him to be like, you're right. I don't need to be my dad. I really love doing this other thing. And it sets him up then for success. And we've gotten him taking, you know, more classes in history and political science because that's really what he loves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love, love hearing that because, you know, I think there's two things I hear that are things that I try to convey to parents. Unconditional love is the greatest, you know, recipe for success, right? Mm -hmm. Love meaning support. And when I can love my child exactly the way they are, and I can remove my like preconceived beliefs. That's why I started off saying I was a computer science major, partly too, because my dad loved computers and he's really good at math. And uh -huh. he did like aeronautical kind of like engineering work. So his mind is very different than mine, right? Um, but if I can love my child unconditionally where they need to be and support them, they will thrive no matter mm -hmm. what their diagnosis is. Mm -hmm. The adults that come to me, and because I do have a few that come for evaluations for ADHD that are so dejected are usually because they're in the wrong career and mm -hmm. there's an adaptational struggle that is just completely exacerbated their diagnosis. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, the diagnosis is still present and it was present mm -hmm. in other areas too, right? It's not just present right. in the law, but, but sure. their feelings of the anxiety and depression Related to their performance, because that's usually what gets them to me, right? Mm -hmm. Or because they're, they're, you know, in a job where they're like an accountant, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've got to <laughs> pay lots of attention to details, right? And mm -hmm. I'm not meeting the, the expectations. And so I'm having what is a, you know, psychology word, adaptational failure. 
Mm-hmm. I'm willing mm-hmm. to adapt to my environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and instead, what we want to do, even as a young little ones, when they're small children, is we want to find the places, like you said, the garden bed where they grow. Mm-hmm. Even if they have ADHD or learning disability or anxiety or depression, where is the garden bed that they grow so that mm-hmm. they can flourish? Mm-hmm. And they can understand that I have a difference, but there are places where I can still thrive. Uh, maybe dive in then to, you know, you're a parent coach, but how is that different than a, what a, of a parent counselor? And how would a parent choose to go one route versus the other? Yeah, absolutely. Because I've been both, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if you're coming to a psychologist or a counselor for therapy or counseling, um, those words are used interchangeably, right? Um, for parenting support. Like, for example, I am trained in a therapy called parent child interaction therapy, and I did it for years and years and years. Um, usually, what is occurring is there we are identifying and treating a diagnostic concern. Diagnostic means we are treating a mental health type of diagnosis, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, again, I did this for years. And so the kids were receiving a label oftentimes of, you know, ADHD, oppositional defiance, um, you know, um, just a global developmental delay. And so then we were treating the parents to learn how to manage that particular symptom. Right. And that's meaningful because I had many children who flourished with that type of therapy. But it is a very pathologizing diagnostic approach Mm -hmm. to treatment. Right. Um, The parents that I was missing were just simply the parents who were kind of like, you know, I'm feeling really overwhelmed and I don't know how to manage the simple task of like transitions. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's a big but it's a very big deal in our home. There's not a diagnosis for that. But I'm right. not receiving parent therapy for that without mm-hmm. a diagnosis per se, right? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes, particularly if you're involving insurance. And so um, parents would then feel kind of like, I don't, maybe I don't need to call a therapist yet because it's just about transitions or it's just yeah. about people mm-hmm. overwhelmed. Or maybe I had a, a young child and I want to be a better parent and I want to plan ahead for the future. Mm-hmm. That's not really a therapy thing necessarily, right? Because it's not right. Pathology, but that is coaching, right? Coaching mm-hmm. is simply I am collaborating with you about the everyday challenges of parenting life, and we're coming up with solutions that meet your needs, mm-hmm. right? As a therapist, I'm often driving the car for our treatment, right? I, you come to me, I have an idea of a prescribed approach. We're going to go through it in this way. We'll address issues as they arise, but we're kind of moving. I'm the driver. In coaching, the parent is the driver. You are equipped Mm -hmm. with everything that you need as a parent. You know your child. I am going to sit beside you and help you come up with solutions that meet your family's needs. And you don't have to have a diagnosis for that. Let's talk a little bit about how you kind of arrive at at some of those, uh, I guess, on on how you kind of create the roadmap. And and one of those things, I think, is the psychoeducational testing for the the child. Mm-hmm. And so can you tell us a little bit about these tests and when is a good time to get one? Um, and should children be getting these at multiple developmental stages? How does that psychoeducational testing work? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, parents will also call me outside of even just the coaching part 
for psychoeducational testing. And assembly, that is a combined word of psychological plus educational testing, right? So or psychological plus academic testing. And um, that means that I am looking at how potentially psychological concerns impact the academic environment. That's where the school psychology mm-hmm. part comes in for me, right? Um, where we are blending the two. So I may be looking at a learning disability, possibly, right? You have a child who's struggling with reading, they're struggling with math, they're struggling with writing, um, or they may have ADHD and we're wanting to see how does it impact their academic performance or they have anxiety and it's impacting their academic performance, depression, et cetera, right? And parents are usually wanting this when they're thinking, I may need accommodations in the school environment because of this, right? Mm. Accommodations simply mean that we are providing them with supports so that they can, like we said earlier, be their best self, right? Um, Or they're needing modifications, meaning we need things completely changed in the environment for this child, right? Modified. So again, Mm. they can be their best self. Right. And so we're looking at things like their cognitive ability, um, because for some individuals, we may be even looking at intellectual concerns as the being the reason. Or we may be looking at just what are their individual strengths and weaknesses processing, which means how quickly are they able to um, get information completed, um, their memory, their verbal skills, how well do they do with nonverbal tasks, like hands on things. Mm-hmm. We're also going to do academic things and you're going to, and for me i believe you look at everything because as a parent you may think there's a particular concern but you may not realize that they're behind a little bit in another area too it may not be mm-hmm. significant but it might be enough that you want to provide tutoring for that right or you want to be ahead of that right so you you should have a full academic assessment included in that and then you should also include any emotional kinds of testing because, you know, the research pretty much shows that for kids, I mean, kids spend a lot of time at school, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, unless they are coming from a homeschool environment where, you know, they get to have a a different kind of day, right? Um, But in the traditional school setting, they're spending hours in school on academics. Therefore, Mm -hmm. when they are struggling and having adaptational failure, that can cause anxiety, depression, Even if it's not a diagnosis, it might be warranted enough that we need to treat that proactively or change mm-hmm. the environment in such a way, like you said, taking more classes in the area where I'm stronger in instead of mm-hmm. my whole load being math. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, so you want to know like those things as well so you can provide the necessary treatment. And yes, you do want to do that along the lifespan because, you know, as was mentioned um, by Lauren, children change across the lifespan. You know, I've Mm -hmm. seen children from kindergarten through actually some now coming back and they're like college, which is always enjoyable, right? Mm -hmm. Just, you know, tykes to like older um, because they change. And we also assume that their abilities change academically, right? We also assume, particularly if they're beginning support, and we assume that maybe some of the emotional things have changed as well. Um, And they're going to have different needs at each stage in the school setting. They're going to maybe need different supports in each level. 
because of the demands, right? And as they begin to transition to college, as you mentioned, Lauren, we do want to begin to think about like, well, what are you called to do, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the, the children have heard so much of what they're not good at um, yeah. that no one's really talking to them about, okay, so you have a learning disability. I mean, I wear mm -hmm. glasses. That doesn't stop me from being a psychologist. What are you mm -hmm. called to do though? Well, and the thing that I was not aware of with the accommodations um, was the ability to have accommodations in college and on the SAT and mm -hmm. ACT and something as simple like, you're talking about the anxiety of like one of my boys writing was really difficult for him and he gets a lot of anxiety right writing because it's so hard for him yeah. and so just being able to have somebody that can be a note taker for you or being asked that all of your assignments are typed now in high school that's not a big deal but in a lot of classes especially writing the teacher might say i want you to write down on a paper what your thoughts are you know we have 10 minutes write it down but if that creates anxiety for a kid let them use the computer and type it out so they can get their thoughts down. So the I had no idea the level of accommodation that you can get, again, not just in high school, but in college yeah. um, to be successful. Absolutely. Yeah, you can. And and even um, in some in, in instances, workplace accommodations. Right. So when I have adults come to me with ADHD, you know, it's a, you know not as um, to the same degree as it is in the K through 12 and college environment. But in some companies, you know, with ADA, American Disabilities Act, you know, you identify yourself as a person with a disability. Right. And you kind of say, like, I'm not looking for. Um, you know, something special, but I am letting you know that I may need the following things a little bit different on this team that I'm a part of, mm -hmm. right? Um, you know, I've had adults that have emailed me back and said, you know, my boss was constantly throwing tons of projects at me. And I, after the report, I identified myself as a person with a disability. And, you know, now I'm able to get it broken down a little bit more, mm -hmm. right? Um, or, 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 or I have, can use reminders or they understand why I maybe have earbuds in my ear and I really just cannot talk, right? Mm -hmm. um, because I've identified myself as a person with a disability. Um, can we talk a little bit, let's, about executive functioning. You know, these mm -hmm. days, like, there's so much word around, you know, executive processing, executive functioning, not just for kids, but adults. You know, they'll say, oh, my executive functioning is delayed or different things. So, can you kind of explain what does that mean? And then how does that manifest in kids versus teenagers versus adults? Mm -hmm, absolutely. So, you know, I kind of think of executive functioning as like a racing car, right? And the brakes are a little bit weak, right? And so, you know, things are going really fast and that part of your front part of your brain, which controls the executive functioning skills, um, that simply means that, you know, my car, right, um, the, the front part of my brain is going so fast that I may have trouble with things like my memory, right? I may have trouble with being able to um, kind of be flexible in my thinking, right, and problem solve about tasks, right? That may seem very overwhelming to me because I'm having to organize that information, um, right? And I may have difficulty regulating, which means like controlling emotions, controlling my behavior, controlling impulses, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and so and that can obviously then spill over to most areas of life, right? I mean, I think you know, if you think about like each area of development for children, right? I mean, they're all struggling with regulation, right? When they're little, um, but for children with executive functioning weaknesses, they're usually showing up in that area a lot more with the regulation, right? So 
you know, again, all little ones, you know, elementary age, preschool age, or maybe having meltdowns or crying, right? But the frequency at which that's happening for the children with executive functioning weaknesses is a lot higher, right? And so they may blow up a lot easier. They may not know how to use their words because again, using my words means I have to organize my thoughts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a lot for executive right. function, Yeah. right? I have to plan yeah. out what I'm gonna say. I need to plan out what I'm gonna <laughs> do, right? And I'm already not graying that area because of my development. And now I have executive functioning weaknesses. So that's usually our first red flag. You know, you kind of describe the boys, you know, like, why is no one else running underneath the table? Why is no one else uh -huh. running in the classroom? Why is no one else like throwing things, right? Mm -hmm. And they're not using the words and they're often very frustrated mm -hmm. because they are feeling like I'm mad and my brain is like, again, going really fast car but I can't get those brakes to work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's very frustrating at that age. I was listening to, um, he's a head neuroendocrinologist at Stanford. I think Dr. Robert Spolstra, I think is his name. And he was talking about prefrontal cortex development mm -hmm. and executive functioning. And the number one predictor of that being um, poverty mm -hmm. and that, you know, it, it doesn't develop fully until you're 25 mm -hmm. and even and even much slower or maybe not ever if you were born into a situation of poverty, which I, that was like an aha moment for me where it was like, oh, OK, yeah. So there's a lot of people like uh, also a number one predict or a high predictor of crime is going to be mm -hmm. being born into poverty. Mm -hmm. So there's like a correlation between mm -hmm. poor, I guess you quote unquote, decision making and executive functioning. And it just makes sense that oh, if we're not meeting kids and helping them develop and things like that, then it explains a lot of the future. It does. Um, so yeah. I think this is such an important part of how, how we make a, a better society and help kids is, is help them get the development they need. Mm -hmm. is, is that yeah, what, what insights do you have on that? Absolutely. I mean, I worked in Memphis city schools um, when it existed and um, you know, very, very, very impoverished district, right? And mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. a part of your executive functioning, right, with those neural networks is about modeling, right? Um, you know, when you think mm -hmm. about babies, right? I'm looking around the world, I'm taking everything in. And so again, there are obviously inherent weaknesses, but we know that if I don't have the opportunity for any modeling or teaching or explicit teaching in that skill, then at a certain point, I'm going to miss the window for those neural connections, mm. right? Because mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's a the big push is like zero to five, the zero to five, the zero to five. I don't know if you all have heard about that, but it's like a huge, like, um, you know, kind of a programming of like, let's do early intervention from zero to five, because we know yeah. the window is so important for the brain development, yeah. right? It's the most mm -hmm. flexible, mm -hmm. like it's the, you know, the time that you can adapt things the most. And so, you know, Again, if I'm already having those weaknesses inherently because of you know brain development, but I'm not getting the opportunity to have any chance for teaching or modeling, it, those neural connections are like, oh, we're not needed, right? And so it, it, it's lost, right? And 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 like I said, and so I saw that even in teenagers, which you know you asked about that stage, right? A lot of that's about then judgment and decision making, mm -hmm. yeah, group, right? And so you know you saw a lot of teens that literally. You know, we would talk through a task, me as a school psychologist, you know, I would talk through like, okay, the next time someone looks at you, 
a certain way, right? We don't take like our book and like slam it across their head, right? Um, mm-hmm. One of the <laughs> things we could do, right? Because that's going to yeah. get you suspended. Yeah. You've already been suspended five times before for this. And then literally yeah. I yeah. would see them react, no break. You know, break yeah. is like completely dead at this point almost. And yeah. Boom. The same thing happened. Yeah. Whack mm-hmm. them across the head with the book, right? Yeah. And then when you delve further, it's like, well, in my modeling, I mean, the most eye-opening experience for me yeah. was an emotionally disturbant group. That's what they called it in Memphis. That was the label for the um, special yeah. education. And the kids shared with me when we talked about all these skills for judgment, decision-making. Well, in my family, that's how everybody does it, right? And they were like, my mother, you know, when she has kind of beef with someone else, she goes and she calls, knocks on their door and she asks them to come out to the street and fight. Right. When my yeah. grandparents have beef, they knock on the door and they call you out to come out and fight. So that's how we handle it. And I'm sitting here, yeah, you know, yeah. young, early 20 ish, <laughs> like, okay, how am I going to change these neural connections? Well, it was interesting because this person on this podcast asked this doctor, so, you know, what's the thing that we're going to look back in 50 or 100 years? And say, oh my gosh, I can't believe we were doing this. The same way we look back at lobotomies and bloodletting and all of these, mm-hmm. you know, things that are so obviously. Bad. He said, he said the way we treat executive function mm-hmm. and you know imprisoning, you know, young kids who just Absolutely. needed guidance and needed more neural and, and brain development. Yeah. That, was, that was a major mm-hmm. kind of eye opener for me. It so. is. Is. Yeah, and I, I will say to that, that, um, you know, I, one of the things I tell parents is that with executive functioning, we don't see it like learning academics, but it's the same, right? Mm-hmm. Our, if your child comes in and they don't know their letters, you don't say, oh, they don't know their letters. And that's the end of that, right? right. You say, we right. need to teach them and you, mm-hmm. and you teach them for as long as you need to teach them until they understand mm-hmm. their letters, right? Executive yeah. functioning is no different. My child may be 24 and they still are, you know, not pumping their brakes. I can teach yeah. them. Teaching is not enabling. It is simply teaching. Okay. So transitioning just a little bit and this, I know this is not sort of a one size fits all, but are there like certain tips that you give almost every parent the, the same? Is there like a, a top three Dr. Dixon tips on here's the lowest hanging fruit, um, and it's okay if there isn't, but I was wondering if there's kind of a, everybody can and should be doing these things with their kids mm. or could be doing with you, yourself as a parent. Yeah. Um, you know, I think kind of what I said earlier, right. I mean, cause you know, I see so many differences that present, you know, obviously very different. And I really do try to strive to um, think about reports the same way we just mentioned earlier that they're the child first. So I do try to think, and, you know, hopefully you maybe even saw that, you know, and with the boys, right. But uh, just, you know, I, so that won't say there's like a specific thing. Like I'd say this every time, but I do hope to always convey um, that I want you to understand that you can support your child. Right. Because I think that many parents in a feedback session um, sit on that other side and it can very easily feel like, um, all of the hope being drained away, particularly if that's your first time hearing that your child has a diagnosis, right? So 
you know, and I don't know if you remember that first psychoeducational experience, right? But, you know, there can be some relief with that, but can, there can also be a lot of fear about like, what is the next then, right? So you've told me that they have ADHD or you told me they have anxiety or depression or intellectual disability, or, you know, um, I don't do autism vows anymore, but autism, right? Um, what next, right? And then you can walk away and feel like, will my child have a future? What is that future going to be like? Um, you know, can I support my child? You know, you can be riddled with more fears than you had coming into the feedback. And so what I hope to always convey in my recommendations, and that's kind of standard across the board, I actually even do try to do like a Zen moment before I get on, is that one, I put my, I pretend in my mind that that child is mine. So that way I can remember that feeling, right? Um, and then I try really hard as much as possible to convey that there is a lot of hope at the end of this, that your child is full of strengths and that these are simply recommendations to get you to that point and that there isn't one way to get there. Because that's If there is, like that book is going to be the bestseller. There isn't one way to get to the success, if you love your child, if you follow your child, right, which is kind of like a Montessori principle, right? If you follow your child and the and the areas where they're good at, like the Lego building, right? If you follow your child, you will discover the gift that they have, right? And so these recommendations are to help you support them so that they can uncover their gift. There is no loss of hope. There is no like that my child's future is closed. And I and I said this a lot for when I used to do the autism evaluations and I still do intellectual disability evaluations where parents will cry because you do begin to think, what's it gonna look like, right? Particularly if it's more significant symptoms. And it is the reminder that as a parent, you are still doing your job, which is getting your child to their level of success. That's all kids, their level, right? And so you're still doing that job role. And these recommendations are gonna help you get to that point. But your child is still very much capable with your love and your support and your ability to follow them to be successful. It's not gonna be your definition, but it never is your definition as a parent of what success. I'm, I'm hearing what you were saying about the first uh, evaluation we did, because that was actually the first time that my husband and I actually had an argument about how we were going to raise our kids, because mm -hmm. the recommendation was that they had ADD and that medication might help them. And he is very anti-medication that our kids need to have strategies to be able to, to manage what's going on. And I was like, well, the medication is going to give them the support that their brain needs so that they can do the executive functioning. And we you know, fought for a while before we actually went and decided to do it. And now again, they're older and the boys will say like, it really helps mom. Like I can focus, I can turn in my assignments, I am engaged in class and it, it, it's, it's help, it helps for them. But like, as we, that was one of our first like parenting struggles was that diagnosis of the ADD and how we were going to handle it. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's not uncommon. Right. I mean, I think, you know, the research shows that when you have a child with a diagnosis, the divorce rate just skyrockets. Mm, right? right. 
And, you know, and there's a reason for that, right? I mean, parenting is hard, even when you have, and I'm saying this in air quotes, the typical child, right? Mm -hmm. Parenting is hard. So then when you add in the, all these uncertainties of, I don't know anything about this part of parenting. Well, the truth is you don't know anything about parenting in general, right? (laughs) You really are like, I don't know anything about this part of parenting. Parents begin to clash. And most of the times the clashing comes from the fear that we have as parents, Mm -hmm. right? Because there's a lot of fear probably in parenting already, because you don't know, you want to get your child to their level of success, right? And you don't want to be seen as a failure parent, whatever that means, right? But then now when you have a child with a diagnosis, you're really kind of amped up in that area. And so there's a lot of fear about like, if we take this path, is that going to ruin them? If we take that path, is that going to help them? And so when you have different beliefs about the paths, you know, and, and it's about an area that you're probably not that familiar with because you weren't reading that in the, you know, bringing home baby book, right? <laughs> um, it can cause a lot of conflict, right? And and that is why I do say this, parenting is a marathon. It is not a sprint. And that is for all the children. But I feel like I have to say that a lot to parents of children with unique differences because we're in sprint mode, because <laughs> it's like, oh my goodness, oh my goodness, they have this need, and they have this need, and they have this need, and they need to go to OT, and they need to go to PT, and they need to go to speech, and they need tutoring, and they need IEP, they need accommodation. So you're in sprint mode, and it's a marathon still. Right. And you are not going to have it all right. And yeah. you may hold back on medication because there's a lot of unknowns. You may want to go towards medication because you've heard it works. You may want to put them in a specialized school because you're like, well, that seems like what we should do. You may want to try to keep them where they are because they've made friends and they would be devastated if they have to leave. There's no right or wrong answer for parenting. Mm-hmm. You are a family first. What works for one yeah. family doesn't maybe work for yours. What works for one child may not work for your other one. I was thinking about, so I have nine siblings Mm -hmm. and I remember growing up and I mean, when you have that many siblings, there's obviously a lot of sibling rivalry and we were such a competitive family and everything had to be fair, Mm -hmm. right? It was, oh, but that's no fair. They got this. (laughs) And there were two times in my life in which I remember from an early age that, oh, this it's not about fairness. And and one, it was my younger brother was doing something that really bothered me and I was kind of picking on him for it. And my mom had pulled me aside and she said, let me tell you something. Let me explain this to you about your younger brother. And it was, it was something that was innate to him. And uh, I, I ended up leaving that situation after she explained this to me, one feeling really guilty and feeling like such a chump for treating him that way. Mm-hmm. And then also realizing, Oh, it's going to be different for all of us. And there, there was an, another instance, which, which my mom did that. And she said, we made a lot of mistakes, but like you were part of the experimental group. You were one of the older ones. <laughs> and we learned along the way yeah. that we needed to do things yeah. differently. And they, they are so amazing. And I, now I have to remind my mom, like now you're guilty about certain things you did. You did an amazing job Absolutely. with, with all of us. Absolutely. And I, I have learned so much from watching my parents struggle and see all the things that they've had to deal with uniquely between all of us. And mm-hmm. so I feel like I have such a really good resource to go to them and be like, how did you deal with this with your kids? Yeah, um, absolutely. So, yeah, yeah they can probably write a good book. Everything you're saying is like hitting me right, yeah, right in the yeah. chest. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's true. You know, one of the biggest moments, and this is probably an aha moment, 
Um, and I tell parents this that I, very transparently, you know, ever since I became a parent, I've become a much more transparent psychologist. You know, in our field, we're taught not to be very transparent. But I've discovered as a parent with a child where I sit in front of professionals sometimes for my own child, I'm like, I need you to be transparent. So I think there is value mm-hmm. in being transparent, you know, not overly so where you're taking up this, taking over the session. Right. But, um, right, but, right. But transparent enough to let families know that there is beauty in telling your children I made a mistake, right? Mm-hmm, and I mm-hmm. and I tell that to parents a lot because parents will in feedback sessions will say like, I've been yelling at them for the last 13 years because they didn't clean their room. And I berated them because mm-hmm. they didn't remember their homework. And, you know, I took everything away under the sun because they weren't passing the test. And now I know they have a difference and I feel horrible and they're mm-hmm, crying. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I'm like, mm-hmm. I get it, you know, like, mm-hmm. Even even as a psychologist, when you give birth to the child, you're like, I'm going to treat you like the child, <laughs> the mm-hmm. one that we read in the Bringing Baby Home book, right? <laughs> um, but it's not mm-hmm. until your child tells you something differently or you discover that there is something that's uniquely different about them that you can change your strategy. Yeah. And so even in my own parenting, I tell parents, I do this too. And I encourage the people in my home to do it that are adults apologize and say, I messed up. I didn't do that right. You know, go back to your child after a feedback session and say, I am so sorry. I have yelled at you for 13 years. All, all this is just, is just great. Great. Because I think every parent needs to, to hear what we've just talked about today, but you know, just kind of my one final thought here is, and I mentioned this to you in our session, when we got the the report from you, the summary, and we, I read it with my boys and I said, we're going through it and we're talking through it all. And he took that report and he goes, Oh my gosh, mom, this is the first time somebody understands me. And he called it his case report and he was like hugging it. And it was just so heartbreaking to see like at 16, somebody understood him and he now had a reason why he felt the way he did and he acted the way he did. And it's changed his life. I truly believe that. So for anybody that's contemplating whether to go and and get a, a psychoeducational assessment that like do it. If your kids are struggling, like help them understand themselves mm-hmm. because it just, it, it's changed our family for both of my boys. So I, I thank you for, for giving them that, that tool and that understanding. Um, so I think everybody needs to run and, and get one. <laughs> Whether it's well, that's great to hear, you know, and I think that comes from, like I said, you know, you have to remember when you're doing this, that this could be you, like your boy could be me. Right. And so what do I need from this information? Right. It's not just a report to just write the report. Right. Like there was a life behind that report. There was a life behind, you know, when I did therapy, you know, I would go in every morning, I'd get there early and I'd say like, okay, I'm going to see the five kids, six kids today. Like each one of them is someone's child. Each one of them has a life. Each one of them is going to continue to live a life. Each one of them we hope is going to make it to 40, 50, 60. Right now they're five, right now they're six, right? Remember they are a life. And what you say today, right? is could be impactful enough that at 40 they could still be saying and dr dixon told me there's no hope for you right and that could completely change that child's life not that i'm so powerful that i could do that 
but we know words matter for all adults to interact with children. Whatever you put in the report can change how your parent sees their child, right? And so you have a psychologist. I say a lot of times to my colleagues, like, be mindful of that. You know, my, my son, who I'll call E, right? E is my child and I love him fiercely. They love their child fiercely. Write that report remembering that they love their child fiercely and that they're going to hold this report or like your son did and say, this is me, right? So remember that when you're writing that because, I mean, for all of us that interact or come across people, we need to remember that, not just children, right? That when we interact with people, we plant a seed in their garden. Either we, you know, poorly so, right? Some bad toxic or some good ones. This has been really, really great, Dr. Dixon. We thoroughly appreciate it. Can you just, in wrapping up, tell our listeners where you're located and where they can learn more about you and your practice? Absolutely. So I'm located right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, I'm off of 2751 Buford Highway. And I'm near the Druid Hills area. My practice name is the Parent Child Practice. Um, you can find more about me on www.parentchildpractice.com. And hopefully my site conveys the same passion that I feel on the inside for families and kids. You are wonderful. We thank you again so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Welcome back, everybody, to Made for More. We just finished speaking with Dr. Decia Dixon of the Parent-Child Practice, and I think she just gave amazing advice, and mm -hmm. she is so real, and uh, I think the advice and um, her approach is, is, has so much wisdom behind it. Um, and she, it's very clear that she kind of harps on what are the strengths of the child and how, how does that mesh with how the parents decide to parent and how can those things work together to ultimately benefit the child. And so I think what would be good for you and I to talk about, Lauren, is how do we as therapists use our strengths to combine with what's going on with our patients and, and then how we evaluate them about where they are and be able to pull the best out of them so that they can have the best outcome. So mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot of kind of weight here and I'll just kind of tee this up and then we can talk about our strengths individually. And so one thing I think it's important to know is that people think that medicine is a, an extremely concrete practice is that, mm -hmm. oh, you've got an ankle sprain that is of this specific ligament and everybody who has the same ankle sprain or this has damaged the same tissue, their protocol is going to be exactly the same and everybody's going to know exactly what you need to do with them and how can it be more complicated than that. And I see people mm -hmm. have that struggle of why can somebody not help me when this seems like such a simple thing? Like doctors don't know what's wrong with me, but this is what I have. And, mm -hmm. and so it can be frustrating with your uh, as a patient to see, okay, I've got this thing, but it's not getting better. And so right. that's where I think people need to understand, one, medicine is, is very fluid and we're evaluating tissue damage secondary to what, how does that person live in general? What's their stress like? What's their diet like? What's their sleep patterns like? What's their history as an athlete? What's their exposure to injuries? How's their resiliency? What's their mental state? What's their stress levels like familially, at home, in work, and then 
how is that tissue healing reconciled up against all of those, all those confounding things. variables? And mm -hmm. so that's where medicine is very complicated. And so that's where us as therapists have to recognize our own internal strengths and then be able to be very objective about the people that we're evaluating and see, oh, this person's not going to respond at all the way that I would typically see this respond because of all these other variables. And so how do I allow them the ability to achieve what they need to achieve and basically mm -hmm. incept their brain to get them to where I need them to go because of all these things, right? This is very complicated. <laughs> it is very complicated. <laughs> so how do you, Lauren, as a therapist, use your strengths to be able to get the most out of your sessions with their patients to help them the most? Yeah. Um, it's interesting you said that because it's only been recently that I've under truly understood how I problem solve a solution for a client. Yeah. And that is through us doing our strength finders. What people might not know is part of our hiring process is everybody does their strength finders test to see what they're good at. Mm -hmm. And the one commonality that both you and I have, Jake, is we are very good at the strategic part mm -hmm. and the relationship building. Yep. We are not good at influencing. Nope. Like we do not want to be someone's hero. We want to be their guide. And, um, so two of my strengths that I think are work really, really well with our clients is context. Yes. I really want to know their history. Tell me everything that's happened in your past, the injuries you've had, the sports you've played, the challenges you've had. Maybe, you know, you struggled to be a sprinter and you can only be a long distance runner because you just don't have the cardiovascular, um, endurance for a, a, a high intensity type sport, but you can do something low intensity and do really well at it. Um, and then the other one is individualization. Yes. I love looking at the person as, as you know, who they are and not lumping them into that cookie cutter treatment like we just talked yeah. about. So I take their history because we say the mystery is in the history. So I really mm -hmm. like the context mm -hmm. of where they're coming from where they're going so I can understand the barriers that might be in, in place. Maybe they had an injury, you know, as a, as a high school athlete, a chronic ankle sprain that just never got better or they couldn't, you know, play soccer like they want to because this ankle sprain, but now they're ready to run their half marathon. And I need to know how they felt about that. Like, was mm -hmm. that because mm -hmm. if soccer was their identity and now they can't play, they can't even run, that's really difficult for someone yeah. to get over. Yeah. So I want to know how they feel and how we can empower them to take control over that and really find their new identity in something or, or go back to playing soccer, uh, yeah. but just individualizing that treatment approach so that they can achieve those goals and realize that they, it's, it's so, it's just everything we do. We're always like, and what people probably don't realize is we write down every, every time someone comes in, we have a plan for them. Mm -hmm. It is very thought out and each session might be a progression of one from the past, or it might be just changing. We might have done something that focuses on strength in one visit, and the next we're moving to power because mm -hmm. we want to get the agility and the jumping and coordination better. So I really play on those two is like, I'm going to give you the best plan for you every time you come in, but 
I want to every, and then when they come in and I ask them how they're doing, like, give me a synopsis about, okay, you, so you tried to run, what happened? How did you mm-hmm. feel? Did your mm-hmm. body respond well? What muscles did you feel were sore after you did that workout? And then that helps me plan the next thing. Yep. So I think building that, the, the, that relationship of connecting with somebody yeah. and then helping be their guide is, is like the aha moment for people. Yep. Yep. And for me, I think a diagnosis is the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. The diagnosis is the thing the person's coming in for. And so similar to you, and this is why I think you and I work almost seamlessly together in that we can share patients and they're almost going to get the same thing. It's going to be different because we kind of approach things mildly differently, but you and I have the kind of the same evaluative process where we are both very strategic people and we're both relationship driven people. So everybody who I see, I really think that if they don't feel comfortable or have belief in me, then we might as well not even be working together. And so mm-hmm. from the, the out, I want them to feel totally comfortable and I, I want them to feel like there's a relationship there where they can trust me and they can trust mm-hmm. that I have their best interest at heart. And so I think that's step one is like, let's break down the barrier of like, I'm not a white coat person, right? Like most of the time when people see me, I'm in t-shirt with a hat on. Like I'm a very just regular person. It's maybe some people like "Eh, that's maybe too new school for people. But to me, it's like, no, I'm just here to help you. Like that's it. Mm -hmm. There's no frills. I'm just here to help you. Um, And so I I want to establish rapport with people almost immediately. Get to know them, find a common ground and just break down the the tension of there's a, a white coat here. No, it's just me. I'm, I'm here to share my knowledge and to be your guide. And then, so one is just the relationship. Let's build a relationship. How can I relate to you? And then two, what you said is context. Like context is everything for me because a diagnosis means nothing up against all those things that you mentioned. And just a, a handful of examples, you know, we're not, I'm going to keep it vague enough, but we've had a lot of clients with a lot of different traumas in their life with very mild diagnoses, but because of past traumas, that diagnosis is way overblown. And so sometimes we we have to talk through that trauma with people, but other times we can tell that person's not quite ready to face that thing. So we internalize that and have a workaround on, you know, I always think about graded exposure. If we we need to certainly face things in order to get over them. So Mm -hmm. how can I have people face the thing that they've been struggling with in sort of a, a subversive way? And so you know, I always say, if, if you want to get over your fear of snakes, you got to hold some snakes. That's maybe, mm-hmm. uh, that's a, a bastardization and, a, and an oversimplification for graded exposure. But we need to get people doing the things that they didn't know were holding them back. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's where I think us being really strategic about how we do things with people is really going to help people have aha moments so that they can overcome Um and so it's it's way more complicated than just a diagnosis, right? right. And we, we really want to feel like we're a partner to people and that we are coming up with the best solutions, the most creative solutions and be planned with them. Um, and there's certainly people that I've like, I've not helped and I've realized this is outside of my skill set. You need a lot of influencing and I can't be that person for you. Mm-hmm. And so I think mm-hmm. it's important that you, we know ourselves so that we can know who and how we can help people. Cause there's certain mm-hmm. people like we've thrown our hands up with and said, you know, I don't, I don't know if I can help you. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that's, that's yeah. just as helpful as helping them. 
right? Mm-hmm. Right. Knowing that you can't help them, you can find yeah. somebody that can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like Dr. Dixon was saying is when we just treat the diagnosis, we're, we're falling short with the yeah. person. We're not yeah. meeting them with what they need. And in, in the insurance company wants us to follow a diagnosis. And we've mm-hmm. worked in those practices where we just treated the diagnosis. And did people get better? Yeah. But like sure. it may have just been on the short term. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we didn't actually get them to meet their goal that they had originally came in for because we were just treating the pain or the lack of motion or a weakness yes. issue specific to a body part, not to them as a whole. Right. Well, and that's the thing with the current medical model is it's set up for treating acute injuries, acute, mm-hmm. acute conditions, but it's never looking at the person and saying, how can your life be better? And fortunately, but unfortunately, sometimes, you know, you and I are so fixated on that. How can we completely enrich and help this person long-term? Mm-hmm. And sometimes that gets frustrating for us as clinicians because people maybe aren't ready for that, right? Absolutely. But, but the people who are, are the most rewarding to work with because they get the moment of, oh, this can be better, but my whole life can be better if I can focus on these things. And so mm-hmm. it's just timing, right? It's right place, right time, right person, yeah. their readiness, our ability to convey. And so it's it's tough as a practitioner, but you know, I think I think we've got the right frame of mind for, for how we treat people. So um I think if you're a patient and you're listening to this is know that it's complicated and know that you need to be really proactive with your, your providers. And a lot of times they're going to ask things that you don't really understand why they're asking. Why, why can't they get to the bottom of this? Maybe there's a lot more going on behind the, their, their eyes than you think. Um, mm-hmm. And oftentimes it's that you're complicated and you're everybody's got baggage, right? You're complicated. Injuries are not straightforward. And so you need to be collaborative and proactive too. Yep. So absolutely. That's the, the, the word of the wise for today. So we hope you guys took a little bit away from this, but even more so away from Dr. Dixon's uh, interview. So we thank you for listening and we'll, we'll see you next time.